This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Embracing the Atonement of Jesus Christ. In the first half, James R. Rasband shares his address, Faith to Forgive Grievous Harms, Accepting the Atonement as Restitution. Then in the second half, Benjamin M. Ogles speaks on agency, accountability, and the atonement of Jesus Christ, application to sexual assault. I must say I never imagined myself at this podium. But I have imagined myself on this playing floor, and imagined is the right word. I've wondered what it would have been like um, to be Danny Ainge, who during my freshman year at BYU went coast-to-coast coast in the closing seconds of a Sweet 16 game against Notre Dame and scored over Orlando Woolridge. I've dreamed what it might be like to drain a three from just inside half-court like Jimmer Fredette did against Utah. Unfortunately, my actual skill set um, wasn't a match for such imagined heroics. I'm quite sure it's not a match for this podium either. Still, I consider it a great honor to have this opportunity to speak to you this morning. I love this university. I love the cool, crisp air of a late fall football game and the soft, golden light that falls on Y Mountain and Rock Canyon just before sunset. I even love wandering the stacks at the Harold B. Lee Library. Now, I could go on, but let me just say that BYU has had a great impact on my life. My first experiences at BYU were in the late 1960s. Each summer, my mother, my brother, and I came to BYU from our home in Pebble Beach, California for spring or summer term so that my mom could work on completing her degree. We lived in heritage halls, or to be more precise, we lived in what is now called classic heritage when it was almost new heritage. My mother ended up completing her English degree, and our home was forever enriched by what she learned at BYU. I mention her education at BYU partly because important parts of my thinking on today's topic are derived from my mother's thinking and writing on this topic. The title of my remarks is Faith to forgive grievous harms, accepting the atonement as restitution. Now, to some, any talk from a lawyer that focuses on forgiveness may seem odd. Don't lawyers depend upon a lack of forgiveness to function? In lawyer speak is a talk on the necessity of forgiveness at admission against interest. Now, I'm convinced that practicing law with civility and integrity is a noble endeavor and fully compatible with a forgiving heart. And I'll say a bit more about that later. Indeed, before you become too critical of lawyers, listen to the words of my good friend Jim Gordon, who sits on the stand near me today. Quote, It is true that some lawyers are dishonest, arrogant, greedy, venal, amoral, ruthless buckets of toxic slime. <laughs> on the other hand, it's unfair to judge the entire profession by a few hundred thousand bad apples. <laughs> um, such quips can be tough for those of us who are attorneys. But how much worse can it get, given the number of us whose parents, when we decided to go to law school, made sure to scrape off their car the Ask Me About My Children bumper sticker? Okay, on to the concept of forgiveness. Let me start with a familiar scripture. Matthew 18, 21 and 22 reads, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Have you or a family member or a friend ever been terribly hurt by someone and found it difficult to forgive, even once, 
let alone until 70 times 7. In such cases do we say to ourselves, the Lord can't really mean that I should forgive that sort of sin or abuse. Yet it seems clear that the Lord really does mean it. Our very salvation depends upon us being willing to forgive others. As Christ taught, quote, if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, close quote. That our own forgiveness should be conditioned on forgiving others can be a hard doctrine, particularly if the sin against us was horribly wrong and out of all proportion to any harm we have ever committed. Even harder, the Lord has indicated in modern revelation that, quote, He that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin, close quote. This is a very strong statement. If we refuse to forgive, there remaineth in us the greater sin. How can this be? As I hope to explain, our salvation is conditioned on forgiving others, because when we refuse to forgive, what we're really saying is that we don't quite trust the Lord or that we reject His Atonement. And it is our acceptance of the Atonement that ultimately saves us. Why is it that we sometimes have trouble accepting the Atonement as recompense for the harms we suffer at others' hands? My experience is that we can sometimes forget that the Atonement has two sides. Usually when we think about the Atonement, we focus on how mercy can satisfy the demands that justice would impose upon us. We are typically quicker to accept the idea that when we sin and make mistakes, the Atonement is available to pay our debts. Forgiveness requires us to consider the other side of the Atonement, a side that we don't think about as often, but that is equally critical. That is, the Atonement's power to satisfy our demands of justice against others, to fulfill our rights to restitution and being made whole. We often don't quite see how the Atonement satisfies our own demands, but it does so. It heals us not only for the guilt we suffer when we sin, but it also heals us from the sins and hurts of others. To help explain the two sides of the Atonement, let me try a rather homely analogy. Like most analogies and metaphors, it's not perfect in all respects. I hope, though, that it can aid understanding. Suppose I find myself in a home built for me by a very generous landlord. It is a nice home. He encourages me to maintain and improve the home and gives me a number of instructions for making the home a nice place to live. Over the years, I sometimes improve the home, but other times, through my negligence, I make it worse. One time I flood the home when I fail to set the faucets to drip during a freeze. Another time my kitchen catches fire because I fail to turn off a burner on the stove. A couple of times I lose my temper and put my fist through a wall. In each instance, the landlord forgives me and encourages me to pay a little closer attention to my home and to his instructions for making the home a joyful place to live. He does not charge me for the damage caused by my mistakes. Instead, Sometimes he's patient while I figure out how to fix things on my own. Sometimes he sends someone over to fix the problem. And sometimes I wake up and things are fixed in ways I don't quite understand. This same landlord happens to have a son who is quite wayward. The son is always up to no good, and I don't particularly like or respect him. One night, the landlord's son is a prank, sets fire to the shed attached to the back of my house. The fire gets out of control and the entire house burns down. I lose the home. I lose all of my possessions, 
including some particularly valuable possessions that I can't replace, such as photos and heirlooms. I'm angry and distraught. I want the no-good son to pay. I want him to fix things and to make me whole. A part of me knows, though, that he can't really make it better. He may not have the resources to rebuild the house, and even if he could rebuild the house, he can't retrieve the photos and heirlooms, and that makes me even angrier. As I sit in anger, the landlord comes to visit me. He reminds me that he has promised to take care of me. He promises me that he's willing to rebuild my house. In fact, he says he'll do more than that. He will replace my house with a castle and then give me all that he himself has. He says that this might take a while, but he promises that it will happen. What's the catch? I say. Here are the conditions, he says. First, you need to put your faith in me and trust that I really will build you that castle and restore all that you've lost. Second, you need to continue to work on implementing the instructions I gave you about keeping up your house. Finally, you need to forgive my arsonist son, just as I've forgiven you all these many years. Now, it sounds easy enough, and it seems like an obviously great deal. But why might it be hard for the tenant to accept the landlord's offer? Or to move away from the analogy, why is it sometimes so hard for us to forgive others? Let me suggest some reasons. First, we're probably angry. We want the arsonist to pay. But if we harbor this sort of anger, we may spend so much time pursuing the person who burned down our house that we don't get around to rebuilding it. As someone once said, resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. It also might be hard to forgive because we can't quite believe the landlord will fulfill his promise. He's never failed us when we've messed up before. But what about this time? Besides, it's usually easier for us to believe that the Lord will forgive our mistakes. This time, it's someone else's mistake or sin. Trust can be particularly difficult if the rebuilding project will take time. We want things fixed now, not later. Trust may also be harder in the cases of losses and hurts that do not seem easily fixable. Perhaps the landlord can rebuild the home, but can he really replace the photos and heirlooms? What if we lost a child in the fire? Can he really take away that pain? My testimony is that the Atonement really can make us completely whole, even for those things that seem like they can't be fixed or repaired. As Isaiah foretold of the Savior, quote, The Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort all that mourn, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Close quote. Now, I recognize that this doctrine, that the Atonement can heal us from the hurts of others, is one that's well established. Yet in my experience, it remains difficult to trust and accept that the Atonement serves this purpose. My hope is that I can add to what's previously been said on this topic and help remove some barriers to forgiveness by offering some reasons why we should trust the Lord's promise. I turn first to the Mosaic Law and to an insight I owe to my mother. Remember that Paul taught that the Mosaic Law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Remember also Christ's statement to his disciples in his Sermon on the Mount. Think not that I am come to destroy the Law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Law, till all be fulfilled. Close quote. Think about Christ's statement for a minute. Christ was comforting his faithful disciples, those who loved and revered and followed the law of Moses. 
He was making sure they knew that his plan was to fulfill all the terms of the Mosaic Law. But what exactly were those terms that he would fulfill? Our answer to this question typically focuses on the portion of the Mosaic Law that addressed Israel's obligation to make sacrifices. We tend to emphasize the Savior's admonition that, quote, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, and that instead we should, quote, offer for a sacrifice a broken heart and a contrite spirit, close quote. Our usual focus on the law of sacrifice is again on ourselves what sacrifices we need to offer up to access the power of the Atonement and heal our feelings of guilt and remorse. But the law of sacrifice was just one component of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law also included dietary laws and criminal laws. Remember the lex talionis of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It also included civil laws that today we might recognize as tort law or contract law. Isn't it plausible that when the Savior said he came to fulfill the law, he was talking about more than just the law of sacrifice? Shouldn't we take him at his word that one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled? Now, Although I'm not an expert on the Mosaic Law and surely do not understand exactly how Christ fulfilled the law in all of its dimensions, let me suggest that the Atonement did in fact answer other demands of the Mosaic Law. Specifically, I want to focus on the civil law component of the Mosaic Law and its requirement that restitution be made to persons harmed by the wrongful actions of another. I do so because the restitution requirement is so important to understanding the doctrine of forgiveness. Exodus 21 and 22 set forth several such restitution requirements. Consider two of many examples. If a person caused a fire to break out so that, quote, the standing corn or the field be consumed therewith, um, he that kindled the fire was required to make restitution. Close quote. Similarly, if someone caused his livestock to graze in the field or vineyard of another, he was obligated to quote, make restitution out of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard. Close quote. This concept of restitution remains a key part of our law today. Under tort law, which is just another word for personal injury law, courts can award damages to persons injured by the negligence of another. Similarly, under contract law, damages may be awarded to those harmed by breach of contract. In the criminal context, many states allow crime victims and their families to prepare what are called victim impact statements, which describe the way in which they have been harmed. The basic point is that just like current law, the Mosaic Law was not designed only to punish the wrongdoer. The Mosaic Law also existed to protect, compensate, and make whole those harmed by others whether intentionally or negligently. If Christ came to fulfill all the terms of the law, this part of the Mosaic Law should also be fulfilled by the Atonement. So if the Mosaic Law schools us that Christ intended to make full restitution for the harms we suffered, it still doesn't indicate how that could happen. Just like it's difficult to understand exactly how the Atonement satisfies the demands of justice for our sins, it is challenging to grasp how the Atonement works to make restitutions to us for the sins of others. As is the case with most such how questions in the gospel, we must ultimately fall back on our faith and trust the Lord that His promises are true, even if the mechanism is uncertain. But as an aid to our faith, let me suggest a couple of ways in which the Atonement can be understood as making restitution. First, even for something as horrible as losing a child because of another's sin, 
The Atonement ensures significant restitution through the resurrection. We are promised in Alma that, quote, everything shall be restored to its perfect frame, close quote. In addition, just like the wealthy landlord in my analogy promised not only that he would build the tenant a castle, but also give the tenant all that he had, in scripture after scripture, the Lord promises us all that he has. Doctrine and Covenants 88, 107. And then shall the angels be crowned with the glory of his might, and the saints filled with his glory, and receive their inheritance, and be made equal to him. Close quote. Doctrine and Covenants section 84. He that receiveth me receiveth my father, and he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom. Therefore all that my father hath shall be given unto him. Close quote. If we can inherit all that the Father has, and if all will be restored to its perfect frame, is there a reason we should insist that the person who hurt us pay us back? Hasn't justice been satisfied? Now, it's critical to understand that forgiving others is not just a practical virtue. It's a profound act of faith in the Atonement and the promise that the Savior's sacrifice repays not just our debts to others, but also the debts of others to us. In our live-and-let-live society, we may believe that forgiving is just etiquette and good manners. It is not. We may think that forgiveness requires us to let mercy rob justice. It does not. Forgiveness does not require us to give up our right to restitution. It simply requires that we look to a different source. The non-judgmental worldly phrases, don't worry about it and no big deal, are not illustrations of the doctrine of forgiveness. On the contrary, when a person sins against us, it can be a very big deal. The point is that the Atonement is very big compensation that can take care of very big harms. Forgiveness doesn't mean minimizing the sin. It means maximizing our faith in the Atonement. My greatest concern is that if we wrongly believe forgiveness requires us to minimize the harms we suffer, this mistaken belief will be a barrier to developing a forgiving heart. It is okay to recognize how grave a sin is and to demand our right to justice if our recognition triggers gratitude for the Atonement. Indeed, the greater the sin against us, the greater the harm that we suffer, the more we should value the Atonement. Consider Christ's parable of the two debtors from Luke chapter 7. Quote, and there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he, Christ, said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Close quote. If Simon is correct that the greater sinner will love the Lord even more, doesn't the same reasoning suggest that our love for the Savior will increase when he pays a particularly large debt owed to us. There is little value in claiming that a wrong against us is slight. Instead, if we give the wrong its full weight, we are better able to give the Lord a full measure of our gratitude for making us whole. And when we understand that the Lord promises us restitution, we can recognize that our anger at our victimizer is ultimately unnecessary. This, in turn, helps free us to love our enemy as the Savior commanded. In sum, the principle of forgiveness does not require that we give up our right to justice or that we give up our right to restitution. Christ answers the demands of the law for our sins 
and for the sins of others. We just have to be willing to accept that he has the power to do so. Now let me return briefly to a subject I raised at the beginning of my remarks. Specifically, some may still be wondering whether focusing on the commandment of forgiveness is an admission against interest for a lawyer. To place the question squarely, does the commandment that we forgive all men mean that litigation and lawsuits are inherently wrong? I believe the answer to this question is no, but it's an important question that every lawyer must ask herself and that every client should also confront. Indeed, it's often a question with which those who have been grievously harmed must wrestle. One of the best explorations of this issue is contained in a book by Elder Dallin H. Oaks entitled The Lord's Way. Elder Oaks begins by rejecting what he describes as two extreme views. First, that a Christian should never use courts to resolve disputes. And second, that there are no religious restraints on participating in litigation. Now, as an aside, isn't it interesting how such tough questions often cannot be reduced to easy, all-or-nothing answers? I hope it's not just the lawyer in me, but I've always found it simultaneously comforting and stressful that the restored gospel frequently requires us to wrestle with understanding principles in apparent tension. Thus, both faith and works are necessary for salvation. Both faith and reason are the work of this university. Both the body and the spirit constitute the soul of man. Both personal inspiration and priesthood authority are important to understanding God's will. Whereas the world often suggests the answer must be either or, the restored gospel finds a way to say both and. It seems that a core principle of the restored gospel is that we must learn by our experience to understand, obey, and navigate eternal truths that may appear to be in some tension. Perhaps more accurately, we are expected to embrace both sides of such apparently opposing principles. Although one might be able to categorize some lawsuits as clearly inbounds or out of bounds, Elder Oaks, unsurprisingly, largely eschews categorization and instead focuses on principles or preconditions that should govern whether to file a lawsuit. For example, he emphasizes that we must begin by forgiving our adversary and removing revenge as a motive. We should then pursue settlement as a manifestation of the principle articulated by the Savior in Matthew that if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother." Close quote. Elder Oaks also identifies a third precondition, that a litigant should consider the impact a lawsuit will have on others. Again, this is simply a manifestation of the Savior's teaching of the Golden Rule. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Today let me suggest one additional set of criteria by which the conduct of a lawyer should be judged. Those criteria come from Section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants and its teachings on exercising power in the priesthood. Now, I recognize uh, that a license to practice law is quite different than the priesthood of God. Passing the bar doesn't give someone the authority to act in God's name, although critics may occasionally wonder if that's what lawyers believe. Still, if one stops and thinks about it, a legal education and a license to practice law are instruments of power. The power flows not just or even primarily from the state's exclusive license to give legal advice, but also from the refined critical and analytical thinking skills and from problem-solving skills that cause others to look to lawyers for help with their most vexing problems. If, as lawyers, we have the power, the question is how we should use it. Or, um, for non-lawyers, how you should expect your lawyer to use his or her power. 
In that regard, let me paraphrase a few familiar verses from section section 121. The power of a lawyer cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That a license to practice may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, amen to the authority of that lawyer. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of a lawyer's status, only by persuasion, long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul, without hypocrisy and without guile. Now, much more could be said on this topic, but today I simply want to emphasize that if lawyers use their power and authority consistent with the principles of Section 121, and if clients who may have been victimized likewise adhere to these eternal yet challenging standards, litigation need not stand in opposition to the principle of forgiveness. As I finish, let me return to the heart of my message, which is the Savior's promise in Matthew that He will forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. These are two sides of the same coin. We can't have faith in only one side of the Atonement. To be efficacious, to have saving power, our faith in Christ and His Atonement must include both His power to pay for our sins and His power to pay for the sins of others. Harking back to my landlord-tenant analogy, sometimes we burn the house down through our own carelessness. We play with fire. Sometimes the house burns down through no fault of our own. Lightning strikes, and there's nothing that we can do about it. Sometimes our house burns down because of the sins of others—the landlord's arsonist son, in my analogy. The wonder of the Atonement is that it works for all three. But our own receipt of the Atonement is conditional on forgiving others. If we do that, accept Christ, and strive to keep His commandments, we will receive the castle and all else the Father has. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Embracing the Atonement of Jesus Christ. We've just heard from James R. Rasband. After the break, we'll return with Benjamin M. Ogles for Agency, Accountability, and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, Application to Sexual Assault. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Embracing the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Next is Benjamin M. Ogles, Dean of the BYU College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences at the time of this address, titled Agency, Accountability, and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, Application to Sexual Assault. In 2017, many stories were published regarding sexual harassment and assault. Celebrities, politicians, and corporate executives were among those accused of being perpetrators. The Me Too campaign in social media and Time magazine's selection of the Silence Breakers as the Person of the Year highlighted the increasing and sometimes controversial focus on this issue. The Chronicle of Higher Education a newspaper for university faculty and administrators recently started tracking sexual harassment stories as they came to light at universities across the nation. 
I watch these stories and others in the new year with particular interest given two university responsibilities that I've had over the last two years that focused on the issue of sexual assault. First, President Worthen asked me to serve on the Advisory Council on Campus Response to Sexual Assault. This council focused on examining the university's response to incidents of sexual misconduct. Our charge was to determine how to better handle the reporting process for victims of sexual assault. To gather information, we set up a website where more than 3,100 people submitted feedback. Though it took many hours, we read every response, some of which described personal and heartbreaking experiences. Our work resulted in 23 recommendations, all of which have been or are being implemented at BYU, including the development of an amnesty policy, changing organizational structure, creating a victim advocate position, and conducting a survey of BYU students regarding sexual assault. The second committee I served on surveyed all full-time students during winter semester 2017. Again, we learned of some BYU students' painful and distressing experiences with sexual assault. These committees were not my first encounter with the issue of sexual assault. As a stake president, I prayerfully strive to be a source of comfort and healing for victims of sexual assault. As a psychologist, I sometimes counsel those who suffer the consequences of abuse or assault. When I worked at Ohio University, I reviewed dozens of theses and dissertations researching sexual assault for the graduate students of my colleague, Dr. Christine Gittich. Even with this background, service on these committees made me all the more keenly aware of the suffering that is associated with sexual assault. What added more to my sorrow was the fact that here at BYU, Even though we have high standards for our conduct, there are individuals who perpetrate and experience unwanted sexual contact. This was discouraging. Sexual assault is a difficult, highly charged, and sometimes political topic not easily discussed in any setting. I felt anxious and at times overwhelmed as I prepared this address. I did not volunteer to participate on the Advisory Council and certainly never imagined that I would deliver a devotional focused on the gospel doctrines associated with sexual assault. Yet my experiences led me to this moment where I feel an urgency to address this delicate topic. I pray that as I continue, the Spirit of the Lord will attend us and help communicate the intent of my remarks. First, I want to address some doctrinal foundations before applying them to the specific issue of sexual assault. During the Council in Heaven, we were given the opportunity to sustain Heavenly Father's plan. Our very presence here today confirms our premortal decision to trust in the Savior and His Atonement rather than joining the Father of all lies in His rebellious attempt to destroy the agency of man. The Lord later reaffirmed human agency when He told Adam and Eve they could choose to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for it was given unto them. So now we find ourselves here in mortality, given physical bodies and the opportunity to progress, and demonstrate we have the faith to do all things whatsoever the Lord commands. The ability and privilege God gives us to choose and to act for ourselves continues to be essential in the plan of salvation. Without agency, 
we would not be able to learn or progress or follow the Savior. With it, we are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. With agency, we have the opportunity to become like God. However, progression is only possible in a context that is rich with a variety of real choices, including good and evil. Life on earth is brimming with experiences that will help us progress. It brings with it a physical body, valuable mortal struggles, and the opportunity to live and learn by faith. Implicit with this freedom to choose is the reality we all make mistakes. Sometimes we do not have all of the information we need to make a good decision. Other times we make mistakes, transgress, or sin, which can bring painful consequences for ourselves and others. This shows how agency is inextricably bound to accountability. For every decision and action, we remain answerable to God. Without Jesus Christ's role in the plan of salvation, this accountability would mean a dead end for us in our progression. But because of the power of the Savior's atoning sacrifice, we can find peace, cleansing from sin, and ultimately eternal life in God's presence. Importantly, not all suffering or adversity in life is the result of our mistakes, transgressions, or sins. Adversity, frailty, weakness, disappointment, and suffering are inherent to the mortal experience. These challenging aspects of life are part of the plan of redemption. Some difficulties, such as sicknesses, accidents, natural disasters, and eventually death, occur because we live in a fallen world, and they give us opportunities to develop patience, humility, and compassion. The Atonement of Jesus Christ provides help for this type of heartache as well. In addition, some of the most complicated problems in life are the direct result of injuries caused when our fellow human beings unrighteously exercise their agency to hurt, control, coerce, or use others. Unfortunately, people around us, even those closest to us, like our family, dating partners, and friends, sometimes use their agency to act in ways that injure us. While our Heavenly Father recognizes and cares about the evil and pain we experience in this world at the hands of others, He will not remove their agency because doing so would violate the boundaries that promote our progression. To preserve moral agency, the Lord does not restrain individuals from improper use of that agency. He understood that some of His spirit children would use that agency improperly, causing serious problems to others. But God did not leave us to suffer at the hands of others without providing a way of overcoming the tragic consequences of such damaging use of agency. The Savior's atoning sacrifice can heal us from the hurts and abuse of others. Even so, it is upsetting, sometimes agonizing, to experience the evil, ignorant, or naive acts of some that harm us or our loved ones. The last doctrinal foundation I would like to highlight is connected to sexual intimacy. Our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son are creators and have entrusted each of us with a portion of their creative power. Specific guidelines for the proper use of the ability to create life are vital elements in the Father's plan. How we feel about and use that supernal power 
will determine in large measure our happiness and mortality and our destiny in eternity. When used inappropriately through dehumanizing objectification of others, selfish gratification, or as a tool to subjugate and manipulate another person, sexual contact becomes an act of aggression that lacks respect for agency, affection, and God's standards. On the other hand, sexual intimacy can be a healthy, positive experience when it is mutually expressed under the right circumstances within healthy contexts and with the full consent of both individuals. Now, how does this doctrinal background apply to the issue of sexual assault? I will discuss this relative to perpetrators, victims, and others. Within this doctrinal context, it is easy to see why committing sexual assault is such a grievous sin. The perpetrator exerts power over another person, disregarding their agency and depriving them of their right to control their own physical body while treating them as an object to satisfy their selfish desires. Individuals who force or coerce sexual contact engage in one of the most personal and invasive forms of aggression. The very definition of sexual assault underscores the idea that the perpetrator is denying the agency of the victim. For example, the definition of a sexual offense in Utah Criminal Code includes sexual acts committed when, quote, the victim expresses lack of consent through words or conduct. If the other person does not agree to or does not willingly or freely agree to touching, kissing, or other sexual behavior, they have not given consent. Consent cannot be given when the person is asleep, unconscious, intoxicated, or does not have the intellectual capacity to agree, including when they are minors. Similarly, just because a person stops resisting or freezes in response to pressure, manipulation, or coercion does not mean that the person has consented to sexual contact. Now, some may mistakenly believe I am describing situations that only occur with strangers suddenly assaulting unknowing victims. The data from the BYU Campus Climate Survey, like national data, illustrate a very different reality. Of the 12,602 students who completed the survey, 475 reported 730 separate incidents of unwanted sexual contact. 52% of the incidents were perpetrated by a current or former boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. A combined 37% were perpetrated by an acquaintance, friend, or former friend. Only 6% were perpetrated by a stranger. These findings suggest that some men, and I use men because the data clearly indicate men are far more likely to be the perpetrator than women, either misunderstand the nature of consent in a relationship, misinterpret their partner's wishes, or understand their wishes and directly ignore them as they force their own will upon a partner. I believe some instances of unwanted sexual contact at BYU occur because one person assumes that the other is interested and, quote, goes for it without ever checking to see if their perception of the other person's wishes is accurate. They then may stop when explicitly asked, but only after having kissed or touched without permission. Although this situation is different from one where a perpetrator deliberately ignores 
the other's wishes and forces sexual contact, it is still without consent and is prone to result in significant negative consequences for the other person. Accordingly, I wish that all people knew how to ask first. Instead of guessing or assuming, we can rely on direct information. For example, one possibility is to ask first, and if consent is given, then you kiss. It might go something like this. I like you. I really enjoyed being with you and getting to know you. Would it be all right if I kissed you? Then you wait to hear the response before acting. I realize this is very different from the movie scene where the good-looking and charming hero grabs the leading lady in spite of her physical resistance and kisses her forcefully. Typically, this fictional scene then portrays her melting in the heat of the moment and eventually returning the affection. You are bombarded with these types of unrealistic scenarios in many formats. Please learn to discern between reality and fantasy. These are fake relationships that sometimes romanticize assault. And though some may swoon by their appeal, the most respectful approach in real life is to honor the personal space and physical autonomy of others and only kiss or touch when you are sure you have consent. Remember, sexual contact without consent is assault. Now, when talking with students as I prepared this devotional, some were skeptical of the idea of seeking consent. They worried that asking for permission might ruin the moment or feel awkward and embarrassing. It would be convenient if consent for every attempt at physical expression of affection was intuitively known by both parties. The problem is that not every kiss is wanted. Wouldn't it ruin the moment if the person does not know how to read nonverbal signals well or simply believes that she or he was interested when in reality they were not? The pain of being physically violated is much worse than the brief and potentially awkward moment when someone lets you know that they would like to be more physically intimate. Besides, I believe it's possible to find creative, fun, and romantic ways to ask for permission that may even improve the moment. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we also understand that a sexual relationship is sacred and only sanctioned by God within marriage where spouses freely give themselves to one another emotionally and physically. When transformed by a sealing covenant within holy temples, this marital union becomes eternally sanctified. When we understand physical intimacy is a profound expression of love, trust, and creative powers within covenant marriage, then the issue of consent becomes even more vital. Marriage itself is not consent to intimacy. Spouses have the same obligation to respect one another's agency in physical and personal space as in any other relationship. And what joy could possibly accompany a sexual relationship in which only one spouse is freely and willingly engaged? Or spoken more positively, what an incredible opportunity for affection and joy when covenant-making husband and wife willingly and mutually consent to use God-given creative powers as a way to express their love and a devotion to one another. I also gained insights about consent and agency in everyday non-sexual interpersonal interactions through my service on these committees. 
For example, I realize that I sometimes roughhouse with my grandchildren in a way that disregards their right to choose how to manage their personal space. While playing together, I sometimes chased and grabbed one of my grandchildren and then tickled them while ignoring their protests. In the middle of the summer of 2016, while reading first-person accounts of sexual assault, I realized that tickling my grandchildren in this way was potentially problematic. Although it was innocent and all in good fun, perhaps it was not okay for me to tickle them in spite of their objections. I wondered, what am I teaching them about agency and their voice and their personal space? Will these early learning experiences influence their perceptions about what is and is not okay in future relationships? My study of sexual assault changed my ideas and behavior concerning personal space and respect for another's agency. Those who violate another's agency through force, coercion, ignoring, or naively guessing about their wishes regarding sexual contact will stand accountable for their actions. President Gordon B. Hinckley said it this way, And then there is the terrible, vicious practice of sexual abuse. It is beyond understanding. It is an affront to the decency that ought to exist in every man and woman. It is a violation of that which is sacred and divine. It is destructive in the lives of children. It is reprehensible and worthy of the most severe condemnation. If you are one who has committed this sin, I encourage you to see your bishop, to repent, to cooperate with legal authorities where necessary, and to seek professional help. The seriousness of your acts may require you to face civil and Church discipline, but full repentance will bring the sweet relief of forgiveness, peace of conscience, and a renewed life. On the other side of the incidents of unwanted sexual contact are the victims. Of the BYU students we surveyed, 6.5% of female students and 1.2% of male students were victims of sexual assault at BYU in the 12 months prior to the survey. These children of God experienced intimate personal violations to which they did not consent. In addition, 1,692 students, 21% of surveyed women and 6% of surveyed men, experienced sexual assault or abuse as a child or adolescent prior to coming to BYU. To those who have had traumatic experiences, please know there are people, many people, who are concerned for your welfare and many people who have experienced on a personal level what you have experienced. You are not alone. We know you were unjustly harmed, and you may continue to have negative thoughts and feelings. We know your view of your own safety and the predictability of the world and the people in the world have likely changed. You may feel frightened or damaged or unworthy, ashamed or helpless at times. Some of you are already on the road to recovery and beginning to understand you were not responsible when someone violated your agency. You are not damaged or worth less because of the incident. You are children of God, and He stands ready to assist you. You are certainly deserving of the title Survivor. 
Now, your healing can occur either with or without professional help, depending on your circumstances. Yet we know the road you now travel is often filled with suffering and doubt, and we are ready to help. Through my professional interactions and Church interviews with victims of sexual abuse and assault, I know that sometimes victims try to figure out why these bad things happen to them. Some wonder if they did something wrong to deserve this circumstance. Some question their own behavior and wonder if they did something to inadvertently encourage the other person to ignore their wishes, as if they somehow invited this behavior. Especially if they made other decisions around the time of the incident that they now see as questionable, they may think that they are somehow partially responsible for what happened to them. But you are not responsible for that to which you did not consent. That is the essence of agency. Let me illustrate with a personal experience. In 1990, our family moved to a very small community in southeast Ohio called The Plains. The first night, someone broke into our car and took everything they wanted to keep. When I discovered the theft, several thoughts came immediately to mind. If I had only parked closer to the house and away from the street, it's my own fault. I should have locked the car doors. How naive of me to think we were safe just because this is a small rural town. If I had been more alert, I could have prevented this from happening. Do you see how I took responsibility for a crime committed by someone else? No matter where I parked, how naive I was, or whether I locked the doors or not, no one has the right to take things from my car without my permission. I was not responsible for the theft. Yet I automatically took the blame because I could imagine things that I thought I should have done differently. This is a common response to victimization. Similarly, in the much more serious and harmful case of sexual assault, when one's agency and ability to determine what happens to their own body are disregarded, the victim may automatically respond to the situation with feelings of guilt or shame because they can imagine ways that they think they could have or should have avoided the situation. After an assault, a victim may attempt to reestablish a sense of control and order to their life by taking some of the blame for what happened. Victims are not the only ones to erroneously think they may be responsible for what happened to them. Sometimes friends and relatives may think the victim did something to contribute to the situation, too. Perhaps you heard my story and thought I was partly responsible for losing my possessions because I left the car doors unlocked. Let me be very clear about the responsibility for sexual assault. The perpetrator is responsible for their actions. A victim was deprived of their agency, and they are not accountable for what happened to them without their consent, no matter what they were wearing, where they were, or what happened beforehand. They did not invite, allow, sanction, or encourage the assault. As it states on LDS.org, victims of abuse or assault should be assured that they are not to blame for the harmful behavior of others. They do not need to feel guilt. If they have been a victim of rape or other sexual abuse, whether they have been abused by an acquaintance, a stranger, or even a family member, victims of sexual abuse are not guilty of sexual sin. Gratefully, our Heavenly Father provided a way to heal the consequences of acts that, through force, misuse of authority, 
or fear of another temporarily take away the agency of the abused. That secure healing comes through the power of the Atonement of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to rectify that which is unjust. Faith in Jesus Christ and in His power to heal provides the abused with the means to overcome the terrible consequences of another's unrighteous acts. This healing can be supplemented with a variety of resources. In his inspired General Conference talk, Elder Richard G. Scott encouraged survivors to seek help from their bishops, to use professional help, and to recognize Satan's attempts to discourage and deceive them into believing that there is no hope for their future. There is hope. There is healing. I recommend a reading of this and other resources on LDS.org for those suffering at the hands of another. Real peace and healing are available from Him who suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, who took upon Him their infirmities, that His bowels might be filled with mercy, that He might know how to succor His people according to their infirmities. Many of you listening to me today have been neither perpetrators of nor victims of sexual assault. You want to help but may not know exactly what to do. Whether you are aware of it or not, there is someone around you whose life was altered by sexual violence. Being an example of the believers, living a life of kindness and compassion, keeping your covenant to mourn with those that mourn, and serving others can all have powerful effects on those around you. Please do not underestimate the influence of diligent obedience, daily worship, and active service. You can do much good in a general way without realizing how the Spirit is working through you to bless the lives of others. If a friend a relative tells you they have been the victim of sexual assault or sexual abuse, and our data suggests they are most likely to tell a friend or roommate, tell them you believe them, express your concern for them, and encourage them to seek professional help. If they are a student at BYU, there are several resources available to them should they choose. If they wish, they can see the victim advocate and receive confidential advice about the various options for proceeding. They may choose to seek a medical evaluation in our community. All hospital emergency departments and the BYU Health Center provide free exams for recent victims of assault. The BYU Title IX office can provide resources and support to help them be successful in school. In most cases, the Title IX office will not move forward with a formal investigation of the perpetrator unless the victim wants them to proceed. Confidential counseling is also available to BYU students at Counseling and Psychological Services. You might even offer to walk with your friend to one of these offices so they feel supported as they obtain help. You can also be respectful and kind to your neighbors, friends, family, and dating companions. You can provide safety and refuge for those who are victimized. You can help by recognizing that the words and actions you choose influence those around you, including some who are survivors. You can stand up to others when you hear inappropriate remarks. You can also be alert for signs of inappropriate behavior in relationships and take actions to provide assistance when needed. Only by uniting our voices and actions to assist victims and promote respect for others 
Can we help to end sexual violence? In our conversations about sexual assault, we too often overlook the fact that many people are respectful, kind, and considerate of others in their daily and intimate relationships. There is so much good and right among hundreds and thousands of couples. If you are among this group, I congratulate you on your respect for the agency of others and your desire to treat others with dignity. As we treat one another as children of God, we base our relationships on the love, respect for agency, and kindness necessary to form a stable foundation for eternal relationships. It is my prayer that the doctrines and principles of the gospel shed light on this difficult topic in such a way as to bring hope rather than discouragement. If you are confused, uncertain, or disheartened, please seek out support and places to talk through your concerns. Our moral agency is a divine gift that makes it possible for us to progress through mortality by facing opposition, choosing the light, and returning to our Father in heaven. If you have been harmed because of others' misuse of their agency, there are resources available to you on campus. And thankfully, the way has been prepared through the Atonement of Jesus Christ for you to be healed from the injuries, injustices, and offenses of others. Oh, how great the goodness of our God! Oh, how great the plan of our God! The way may be difficult yet. We will eventually triumph over every adversity. Finally, when we respect others' agency, especially in healthy relationships that can lead to and thereafter enrich covenant marriage, we have the potential to jointly, mutually, and consensually engage in an intimate and eternal marriage that can bring us a fullness of joy with our families in the presence of our eternal Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Embracing the Atonement of Jesus Christ with thoughts from James R. Rasband and Benjamin M. Ogles. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.